Hello. You know who I am, so, but <laughs> because you're my son. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> we've, we've met before. <laughs> we've met before. But maybe you don't really know what the project is. No. Isn't tell that me. funny? Isn't that funny? I shall tell you. So we've, of course, been doing this for several years, right? And it started because, originally, because I did an exhibition a long time ago down in Philly, and it was on nominalism, and I thought, oh, that's a little difficult. I'll just have a separate room that's about the conversations with philosophers about the topic. And I thought, oh, look at that. That was so much fun. Everybody enjoyed themselves so much. Hmm. So I tried to then incorporate conversation into both my art practice and my philosophy, thinking that both philosophy and art is really just conversation. So I think it's true, right? A lot of times we just think that both of those projects, that's activities are just sort of soliloquies and people just say what they think. But really, you know, it's a conversations that people have back and forth. So what we do is we kind of go around and ask people what they think about whatever topic I'm working on. And right now I'm working on artist cognition. So what we've been doing is going around asking people what they think about art and any kind of art, music, dance, theater, poetry, visual art, anything at all, and what you think it's accomplishing in the world. So, yeah, it's funny, you know, despite the fact that you're my son, I don't know if I would know what your answer would be. That art? Yeah. Like, what, what do you like? What do you think it's doing? I was kind of taken with the idea that, that, that art had, like, two phases as a... Uh, it had a hierarchical phase, and you would know more about this than I would, but it seemed to make sense to me that it had a hierarchical phase when it imitated music um, in structure. So that, like, just as music has a tonic note to it, the Puff the Magic Dragon song evokes yeah. a sense of um, uh, uh, nostalgia. Or not, I shouldn't say nostalgia, I should say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When you descend from something and then ascend to it, you fixate the you, you, uh, the, the tonic note in your piece, and everything descends from it and ascends to it, and it can evoke predictable feelings when you structure music in that way. And the idea was introduced to me that 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 much of art behaves the same way. Where you, obviously it's a compositional argument. You've got um, you've got a, a, a thing on the page or the paper or the canvas uh, from which everything descends and to which everything ascends, it's organized around that piece. And when it was shattered in the early 20th century, um, uh, uh, art went with it, it, as far as I'm aware, right? And, and just as when Kandinsky um, uh, uh, experimented with that, to my understanding, at the same time, Arnold Schoenberg in Vienna was um, experimenting with atonal music. He had um, he had done away with the tonic note and from Schoenberg came horror music. So the sort of music that you would you would you would score a horror movie to, that sort of stressful, uh, scary music is that way because it doesn't have a tonic note. So well, Arles, I didn't know that you knew all this. Yeah. This is really interesting. Yeah. So who so, knew? Right. But, but I was taken with that idea, and yeah. I, and it, it it was a good way of explaining art in the twentieth century to me, or to my mind, because 
it tracks so closely with music. And there's a nice, there's a nice historical tie in there too, because Kandinsky, before he was Kandinsky, before he was famous, uh, was a fan of Schoenberg's, right? And I kind of think of Arnold Schoenberg as being like the, the devil, basically, of music. <laughs> but like he, he was a big fan of his, and they had a long correspondence in the 1920s before Kandinsky moved to New York. And um, I think that's the history. I don't remember now, but I think I think that was what happened. So in Vienna, huh. he was he was attending Schoenberg symphonies, if you can call them that. They're really just chaotic pieces, and they're and and really tellingly, the organizers of of, of or his curators or whatever you call that in the music world, people who booked him basically, would always put him in the middle of a of a perform of a middle of a uh, of a of a of an event you uh -huh. might call it right. So you'd have you'd have traditional uh, composers either side of Schoenberg, but you'd have to put them in the middle because if you put them at the front, no one would come, and if you put them at the end of the if you put them at the end of the the, the, the symphony or the the event or whatever it was, everyone would leave early, right? So you had to put them in the middle of it, and <laughs> because this is where you could this is where you could slide in the terrible music that he was playing. But it was it was intellectually interesting, I guess, for people at the time, and most interesting to Kandinsky, who was attending these performances and would write to Kandinsky and say and say. Uh, you don't know this, but I'm doing in art what you're doing in music right now. And uh, and they had a long correspondence that lasted decades. Huh. Yeah. You know, I knew that Kandinsky was yeah. was very influenced by music. I mean, he yeah. talks about, you know, doing it in colors, but I didn't know that there was this connection between Yeah, them. they knew each other. So, yeah. so you're, you're thinking, right, yeah. that um, yeah. that there was some kind of like, I don't know what how you'd say it, like shattering of traditional structures. Yeah. Something like that, I guess that, that's the right? way of putting it, yeah. yeah right? right. Um, and I, I get the feeling, right, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I get the feeling that you think it was a mistake, but maybe that's not what you want to talk about. I think about. it was deliberately a mistake, though. You know, I think that Schoenberg's probably, I don't know this, is true. I, I think I did at one point, but I don't now, but I think he was classically trained, right? Yeah. So he, he knew good. consciously that he was doing away with oh, the yeah. structure, uh, yeah, yeah, with the structure I, yeah. he was taught. Right, but you think right. it wasn't a good thing that it happened. No. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if that's a, like a useful way of putting it. Like a good thing that it happened, it happened, right? Yeah. And, and much of the art of the 20th century, from what I can understand, is born of that shattering of, of, of uh, our understanding of, of composition and the way art should be made, musically and visually. Um, and, uh, uh, but it was, I think, part of a. It was of a piece of a larger cultural movement yeah. away from um, traditional life of structuring your your life in a predictable, organized way, typically around belief in a god and so forth. It wasn't an accident, I think, that this followed on the heels of of uh, World War One. Of World War One, uh, but but. Uh, Huh. But so, uh, right, disbelief so, in God generally. All right, right so let me give this back to you because m maybe you're onto something here that I hadn't. Thought like I had thought, right? And I remember yeah. when I, I wrote that book on censorship, right? I thought that it was the effects of World War One. Yeah. That that was the really traumatic thing because, like, when you look at art, right? This where you get Dadaism. Yes. You know, like yeah, and Kandinsky, but also at the same time of the revolution in Russia, mm -hmm. where you get all that sort of radical Russian art coming out, mm -hmm. you know? And so I thought it was like the political factors going on at that time and then the war. But you're kind of pointing to a kind of a broader sort of social organization change 
um, in the 20th century where, and I'm trying to wrap my head around that one, where to go back to sort of the tonal, you know, crescendo, you know, kind of structure that you're talking about before, where it was very organized and your your emotions kind of predictably went up and then predictably went down and you kind of had that sense of order, right? That you expected and was gonna mm -hmm. be delivered, right? But in the 20th century, you think that there's something sort of broader sociologically that yes. happened. Yeah, well, what, and not necessarily connected to the war or the Russian Revolution, but what? what? Well, you brought up World War One, which I think is the right way of thinking about it, because two, to, to my mind at least, two really striking literary events occurred in essentially in the trenches of World War One, on either on, on both sides of the line, right? So on the German side, Fra uh, Franz Rosenzweig wrote uh, "The Star of Redemption," which is, I think, someone described it as less of a book and more of a graduate course in Judaism, right? He wrote that in the trenches just at the same time. J.R.R. Tolkien was, of course, writing what would become um, uh, The Lord of the Rings, right? But The Lord of the Rings is, is, is a more profoundly religious book than, than anything C.S. Lewis probably wrote, who was his good friend, right? Yeah. Wrote about Christianity. And, and just to be uncharitable to him, C.S. Lewis, all he did was restate um, Christian eschatology, right? Yeah, I've All often he thought he was what, unimaginative. What, yeah. he, what Tolkien did was was much more theologically interesting. He wrote the his, He wrote a, a uh, uh, he wrote a a mythology of Europe that didn't exist of specifically pre-Christian peoples in, uh -huh. in Europe, and it's precisely what happens to those peoples when they inevitably die, which is what Christianity. I think has has always has always sought to provide an answer to prevent and provide an answer to mm -hmm, right. Yeah. There's a reason you've never met a Hittite or a, a Babylonian or an Assyrian, right? It's not because the the ancestors of those people aren't biologically alive today. They're called Syrians yeah. and they're called Iraqis. the The reason you haven't met them is because no one speaks that language anymore. And I think what Christianity and and more originally Judaism sought to do was preserve in a more permanent way your memory of yourself and the engine by which you preserve yourself is your language. You die when no one else is around to remember your words, yeah. you know? And Tolkien's like literary innovation wasn't the story of the Lord of the Rings per se. He wasn't a good writer. And as someone put it, his, his, his characters are stick figures, essentially. You know, it's not like a literarily sophisticated, or it's not like, it's not something you'd read because the book is is well written. Yeah. It's, it's but the the point of it is profound, which is it's it's about it's about the sort of primordial slush of dying peoples in pre-Christian Europe, and the anxiety and angst those folks experienced before Christ visited them, you know, and and offered a way to preserve your your memory um, through God. So how does that? I don't understand how that represents a kind of shattering of normal. Well, because I think that's the way life, at least in this hemisphere, was organized until Schoenberg and specifically the, the German philosophers of the, of the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, Nietzsche and so forth, shattered it by, by disavowing uh, God and... Um, 
uh, and then what we saw from that, just to bring it around to your original question, was 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 a, a final the disavowal order. of 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 the of the organizing of principle of, of uh -huh. art and by extension life itself, which was belief in oh, in the hierarchy the hi of things. That's the hierarchy that yeah. you started out with. I see now. Yes. All right, so let me give it back to you. Then you tell me if I've got this right. Right. So that. You're saying sort of before the 20th century, maybe this has to do with economic prosperity, I don't know, right? Yeah. But, uh, and the Industrial Revolution, but before the 20th century, right, <clears throat> you had a, a, a sort of general belief, probably all of, at least you're right, this hemisphere, right, mm -hmm. that the world was constructed in this orderly, hierarchical way. God yeah. at the top, us, natural law, right? Yes. Us, animals, right. plants, right? That kind yes. of like natural, right? And that... <clears throat> maybe because of partly World War One, but you think other factors were there? You think that a lot of the dissimulation in that way was that people were now saying, oh no, there's no God, there's nothing but this. And so that kind of almost rigid yeah. steel structure that kept everything up, you know, like a building yeah. sort of crashed down. And so now everything is sort of on the same level and more chaotic, non-hierarchical. Yeah. Right. And so then that opened up the possibility of these artists like Kandinsky and Schoenberg and things like yeah. that to sort of reflect that kind of yeah. horizontal world now. Yeah. Right. Instead of a vertical hierarchical world, it's now a horizontal world. Yeah. I, I think to treat, I think to treat the, the, the destructive artists of the 20th and 19th centuries as, as innovators is sort of to mistake the effect for the cause really uh -huh, uh -huh. like they I think followed it, they followed a line of thinking that had been in place for the for the previous hundred years in philosophy that that held that that um, actually the the or that the principle by which we organized our life that was ordinal hierarchical with God at the top and and yeah. everything descending from him um, was bunk, and um, and that followed that. So so yeah. I don't think they innovated at all. I think that they 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 were the artistic expression of a of a of a European existing. line of of yeah. of um, nihilism, right? That had yeah. that had taken yeah. hold in in Europe, um, out of which, of course, from which, of course, or rather within which, World War One was a sort of Clonk uh, on the head, final. Clonk on the yeah, head, but yeah, yeah uh, uh, philosophically and psychically destructive event in in history, um, a watershed moment, kind of after which things changed, and uh, uh, I don't know that that's the dividing line. It's only a germ of an idea, but I think that that you can draw a pretty sharp line between um, pre-war Europe, um, pre-World War One, that is, and and post World War One, Europe, huh. and 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 okay. Well, that's a really America. interesting. It's a really interesting perspective. Or at least I had no idea that all this was in your head. <laughs> so glad I asked. So glad I asked. We should have had this opportunity sure. sometime in the last couple of decades, right? Yeah. Um, so let me then bring it back, kind of, to the topic at hand, right? And give it back to you. So you seem to think that. And I think you're right about this. I mean, of course, this is right, right? Artists aren't making up the social world. They are 
articulating the social world, right? So you're right. Yeah. You know, the cause and effect there is probably pretty clear, right? Yeah. But I think that's the job of artists, right? Is to sort of express your melu, right? You know, sort of articulate the world that you're in, yeah. at least your position within that world. So you seem to think that art kind of before the 20th century, and all art, had a different kind of role than the art since then. Right? You seem to have this like big yeah. barricade. That but not to say that it was unoriginal, but I think that, I think that artists of the of, of Bach's generation, for instance, I, I think it was uncontroversial for folks of that age to to suppose that that there was that human creativity didn't exist, that the only truly creative thing was God. Mm-hmm. Only that only God could create stuff. You could you could merely rearrange things and um, Of course oddly enough that was Hume's point too, one of the great atheists of the right. world. And yes. to, to talk about Tolkien again, of course, is a very yeah. famous line in those books that 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 evil evil has no power to create only good can create it can only it can only evil can only corrupt that which has been created by good things right but that's a that's a that's a very conventionally christian view of yeah. creation creativity in the world ironically though the most creative artists we have on record the box of the world and so forth the, the most they were totally of the mind that they themselves weren't creative they they were they were only vessels through which the god could God had already created and they were interpreting, right? Our conceit as modern peoples that we, to my mind, is that we are creative, but we're not actually. And I think that we live in profoundly uncreative times artistically because uh, we're self-absorbed. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is, uh, that yeah. is the world. All right, so the, I think you're right. I think the world that we live in is a very self-absorbed world, right? Yeah. I mean, people have been complaining for eons about how materialistic we are, yeah. right? How vapid we are, right? right? How selfish we are, right? And so you think, though, right, I, I take it, that a lot of that sort of selfishness and narcissism that's part of our culture, that sort of materialism, is the result of kind of doing away with the hierarchical structures that had yeah. built into it yeah. a belief in God. Yeah, and they counterintuitively, right? yeah, th- those those rigid beliefs about your own place in the world and your capacity for creation uh, counterintuitively I think gave rise to the the most profound creativity humanity is aware of having created for itself and hard to square those things or understand precisely why but I think in in understanding that you can you can touch on something deep about about the nature of art and creativity and and its relation to as you said cognition at the beginning of this podcast episode right so like um, See, I think, I mean, I, I think I disagree with you a little bit on one thing. I mean, I think the 20th century has been a profoundly creative, or it was a profoundly creative century. A, a great amount of wonderful yeah. art came out of it, right? That's true. I think it did, yeah. But, um, uh, y- yes, I think that's true. And... I don't know how to square that with my argument, but that is true. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. but you know, it, it, the way to square it might be to say that it does lean towards the nihilistic and chaotic. Yeah. Right. As as a kind of articulation of its reality that it's articulating. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That it doesn't have that kind of sense of what you started this conversation out with right. the tonic note, right, and how everything is organized in that sort of symmetrical right. way around the tonic note. You're right. 
in a kind of broad sort of metaphorical way, all the arts don't really have tonic notes anymore. No, but they all they all did at one point. Yeah, it was yeah, just understood that this is yeah. the way you made art. Yeah. Right. And, and the way I yeah. draw today is still very boring. It's I'm a renderer basically. Right. Yeah. But, um, uh, but I I, yeah. I, I the sort of art that I know people I know make today of like a sort of more conventional contemporary style yeah it's not only stressful to look at but it's boring too you know there's nothing going on there and you've, you can see folks grasping for meaning outside of it but I think it's because they misunderstand why art was created before before Schoenberg and co blew it up a hundred years ago and um and that that probably that part of modernism that you're talking about there right. well all the modernism is all already in full swing there, right, was only really exacerbated by the movement of postmodernism in the 60s, you know, where things yes. do become extremely individualized, right? right? Yeah, and, un, un, uh, yeah, not coincidentally, the same decade in which the culture became explicitly atheistic as well. Yeah. Right? So I think there's a close relationship between your view of, the culture's view of itself as a thing in the universe and its origin and commitments and obligations and so forth and the sort of art that it leads itself to create. And I, um, huh. and, and all of that Which is- Which ties back to sort of the narcissism. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, see the, yeah. I see the art as being an effect rather than a cause of that change. Yeah. Right? It's, so, it, it, right, to sort of end this with the question, what do we get out of it? I don't know, sometimes it's just nice to look at. <laughs> you know, <I> don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be more profound. Sorry, I, I, don't, know. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Do you think that we get any kind of? I yeah. mean, that you couldn't get any knowledge of anything much outside a kind of. Yeah, but is art about gaining knowledge about anything? I don't see why that should be true. Is it? I mean, or is yeah. It, see, that's the main question. Or is it right? just a good in itself, right? Um, but what but would I, that I mean? I think that the. You asked about the relationship between art and cognition at the beginning, yeah. and I, I think that the answer is that there isn't necessarily one, nor should there probably be one. You can separate these things, and the reason we do art is so that we don't have to think rationally about the world at all times of our lives, because a life yeah. lived too rationally is robotic and uninteresting uh, in a spiritual sense. But can art, I tell art's you, a nice relief of that. Yeah, can I, uh, the man that came in here, the first, right, yeah. was actually a, a lawyer for, a, for finance. And he had a super interesting point. And he thought that all art has sort of a little nugget of playfulness in it. Mm -hmm. And that that little nugget of playfulness is the opposite then of that kind of robotic thing that you're talking about, you know, right. problem solving, doing this, blah, 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 right? But that little nugget of playfulness then also sort of allows us to see other people yeah. and to have a sort of a profound understanding of other people in ways that we couldn't, which then allows us to understand ourselves a little bit better. Yeah. So it ends up being connected to cognition, but in a kind of like what you said, well, it's just fun to look at. Right. You know, so the, the fun part ends up being the most important part. Right. But it's the fun part actually gets you to a kind of understanding right. that is much more important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not against that? the idea, right, that there's a, there's a, there's a 
intellectual component of art. There, there is. It's just that, yeah. But I, whatever it is, I surely don't understand it, especially not now. Yeah. And what, 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 between that and what people are making today. But it's a little bit more obvious to me what was going on in the classical era. Yeah. Eras, I should say. But Thank you, Arliss. This art. was so astoundingly. Yes. I had. It's, you know, I'll tell you something. What's that? You know, this whole project is about sitting down with strangers and mm. learning just like all amazing things about strangers. And I had no idea. My son was the biggest stranger yeah. of all. <laughs> <laughs> I feel inept as a mother. I should have known. <laughs> uh, yeah, where were you my whole life? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, my dear. Of this course. is great.